change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. So said President Barack Obama. I've been thinking about that idea of change recently and that idea, I suppose, of standing up for what you think. Over the 1990s, throughout that decade, I worked as an art director, as I've mentioned previously, and I started to realise, particularly when I started to work as a photographer, working with other art directors, that there were art directors that would stand up for you. And there were those that wouldn't. There were those who would blame the photographer for something going wrong that may well not be the photographer's fault. Well, last week I spoke out about Annie Leibovitz and her Ukraine portraits. I felt that she'd been unduly attacked, unfairly attacked, and actually attacked from a perspective that didn't seem to have very much to do with the actual images that she was making. Now, I'm no huge fan of Annie Leibovitz's work. I do enjoy the early Rolling Stones stuff, but that's about it, to be honest with you. But that doesn't mean to say I'm not going to stick up for her. Well, over the last week, I found myself having to stick up for her again, which is very strange, really, twice in a couple of weeks. But this time, it was concerning some images that she had created of the first black a judge on the Supreme Court in America. A fantastically positive step for that system, uh, and therefore US Vogue had commissioned Annie Leibovitz, as they do, to create some portraits of her. Now, some pictures went out via Twitter, and a judgment was made that Annie Leibovitz couldn't light black skin because the images showed that. I thought that was kind of interesting. And so I immediately went to US Vogue to find the original article where the pictures, which I have to say, I'm not a fan of. I don't think it's by, by any way um, Annie Leibovitz's strongest work. But anyway, the pictures were shown on the website page big. Now, they did look a little soft to me, I'll say that, um, from a technical perspective, but the lighting seemed perfectly okay to me. But it was very different from the lighting on the Twitter images. I'll accept that also. Now, a very serious and very well-respected American academic had made this comment about the lighting, and so I respect his opinion. However, what it raised to me was that should we really be judging a photographer's technical expertise on the basis of a couple of images that had been put together, very small, on a Twitter feed? I don't think we should. Bear in mind that every computer screen is going to show those images differently, as is every phone. There'll be different colour biases and different lighting situations. It's a backlit image. I don't know whether it's going to appear in the actual magazine as well, where, of course, it won't be a backlit image. So all of these kind of conversations come up for me around that statement that Annie Leibovitz can't light that particular skin tone. I don't think it was fair, and therefore I'm going to put my head up above the parapet on this one and say, and put actually put to you a question. 
Do you want your technical ability as a photographer judged on the basis of a Twitter image? Hello and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. As well as defending Annie Leibovitz, something else I saw over the last uh, week or so I thought was well worth discussing. A well-known, well-recognised photographer in America once again, in New York, um, is offering the opportunity to somebody to work with him on an internship basis. It was roughly three days a week, different hours at different times. But let's not uh, kind of dress this up in any way. It was work. It was work within an office environment, organisation, archives and so forth. And it was unpaid. Now, the point that the photographer was making was, yeah, sure, you're not going to get paid, but look at what you're going to learn. Well, yeah, but... How is that person going to get to that office? How are they going to buy lunch? How are they going to pay for their accommodation? How are they going to live? Surely that's the reason why we work. If that photographer wants to give that information, that learning and that teaching to that intern as well, in addition to a small stipend to keep that person taking over, surely that's the appropriate way to go. Now, the photographer I'm talking about is very successful. Many books of his work have been uh, published, and I'm sure that he must have a revenue stream, or multiple revenue streams. So the question has to be, is an internship an internship when it's not paid? Well, it's not, is it? It's dangerously close to slave labour. I think that's enough of the bad guys for this week's episode. Let's hear from one of the good guys and one of the best in the good guy kind of envelope. The category is without doubt Jim Mortram, photographer and advocate for people for doing the right thing. And he will be running his photo print day coming up in September. He ran it previously, a kind of a quick one, as it were, just to um, raise finances and money for Ukraine and in support of Ukraine. It was hugely successful. And so I'm really excited about getting involved myself with photo print day in September of this year. But rather than me going on about it, why don't we hear from Jim and get the facts from the man who knows? Hi, Grant. Thanks. So, September the 2nd, 3rd and 4th sees the inaugural photo print day. It's a tried and tested idea because back in March, five days after having the original idea... We decided to have a, a pop-up event in support of Ukraine. And five days after having the idea, uh, we had raised over £20,000 for various on-the-ground charities in, in Ukraine. So it was a huge success. The plan, though, was to always have um, an annual event in September. Now, the rules are really, really simple. You can exchange any prints for a minimum donation uh, of uh, £10 it's first come first serve and donators can over donate that's no problem I would suggest that if anybody wishes to you uh, say thank you very much take the money <laughs> and run um, it all means more money for charity it's really easy uh, the second third and fourth you just start sharing the, the, the prints that you have uh, available 
uh, on your timelines, on on all your social media. And it's first first come first serve. So you'll you'll find that you get a list of uh, people saying yes, I'd love this. Uh, first come first serve. You get in contact with that person, and then you just work out which donation. Because this time around, it can be any nonprofit organization, charity, globally. Um, so if there's something dear to your heart, you can raise money for that, or several. Um, charities. In order to get the print, the donator makes a donation to the charity that's been agreed upon, and they send you a screen grab of their donation. Once you've got that, you know that um, <coughs> essentially the, the the print has been won. Uh, it sorts out the postage and packaging together. You know, the, the photographer might want to cover it as, uh, as their donation. You might want to split it. Or, you know, if the photographer um, is like me in skin, you can just say to the person that's donated, look, can you cover the postage? And you get your print. Donations start the 2nd of September. It runs the 2nd and 3rd and 4th of September just to cover all the time zones because we had a lot of people in America that kind of missed it or, you know, just to give a little bit more time. So you've got three days to share prints and get as many donations as you're able. Now, this bit's important. You don't have to be a professional photographer to, to join in. In fact, far from it. You don't even have to use a camera. If you can use um, a smartphone, for example, you can make photographs and you can pop to your local supermarket if they've got a printing service. A print off a five by four. It, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't matter. You can go through your family album and pick out pictures of your grandparents. Any kind of photo print can be submitted. You know, it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful treat for somebody that can't afford normally art. So I guess the idea really encapsulates the everybody wins. Uh, It's a great way to get your work seen and shared. Most importantly, it's about what can a community do together. I think that as photographers, it's a really nice way of giving back to the world that we live in and exist in. But also make all our photographs within, you know, without the world around us and the people around us, we wouldn't be making any photographs. So what better way than to celebrate the physical photographic print than by exchanging prints for donations? And let's see if we can't raise even more money this time around. Oh, and be sure that when you share your photographs that you tag in the app Photo Print Day pages. Good luck. I hope to see you on the 2nd, 3rd and 4th. Thanks, Jim. And don't forget to look out for that hashtag photo print day on social media. I'll be including some of my prints as part of photo print day. So check out on Twitter at UNAphoto if you want to contribute to that. I'll be raising money in this case for Parkinson's UK. A little bit later in the episode than usual, but I feel well worth waiting for is this week's photographer explaining to us what photography means to him in less than five minutes. And it's Guy Dickinson, who was born in Thirsk, North Yorkshire, and who trained as an architect in London, winning numerous awards, including the Reba President's Medal. He has been an associate at John Pawson since 2003. 
The seeds of his Tracing Silence project, established in 2011, were sown during a 14-day immersion in the Yorkshire Moors in 1992. Experimenting with methods of construction, weaving, stitching, thatching and casting, he created a series of simple shelters that sought to unearth the intrinsic nature of the places he inhabited. Now, utilising the mediums of photography and poetry, Guy's work continues to explore place, but also the consonance between internal and external passage, the similitude between the passage of thoughts and the passage of the body. He scours, combs and sifts, eyes shifting from foreground to background, from details to horizons, looking to tease out some essence of how we perceive the world around us. Recent work saunters from the sparse to the suffocating. Horizon, depth of field and perspective have been slowly relinquished in favour of texture, tone and surface. Developed through a cycling process of layering and distillation, these quietly cartographic fields invite us to look again at the landscape and the complexity of our place within it. His book, Passage, was recently published by another place, place, I should say, press. What does photography mean to me? When I agreed to do this, the question seemed rather innocent, relatively simple. But the more I spent time with it, the more complicated it felt. Should I say something profound about the medium? Should I take the opportunity to offer some insights into my own work? What I'm doing? Why I'm doing it? But these are questions I ask myself most days, and the answers are in a state of flux. They shimmer and shift as the work develops. I've been looking for an answer that feels more concrete, not something I play back in a year's time and regret, or just an answer that captured a particular idea from a particular time. So I started to think about absences, about what might be lost if I didn't have photography. What photography means to me is delight. Just a genuine joy flailing about in the crucible. It's a creative process. There's an element of nostalgia to this. I've been a practising architect for over 25 years. It's a long course, some five years full time. Looking back, the first few years of those studies were formative ones for me. The scientists say it's the first three years of life, but for me, it was those late teens, early 20s, moving from a small town in Yorkshire down to London. We were learning fundamental things about how to see, to observe, to look at the world in a different way, in a critical way, and how to communicate ideas through sketching, painting, making. We were reading Berger and Albers, learning about colour theory and life drawing. But most importantly, we were learning how to think conceptually, how to pull together lines of inquiry and forge them into a strategy and then on into something physical, tangible, learning how to make the ideas manifest. As an architecture student, you spend a significant proportion of your time in the seeding phase, in the development of ideas. When you move into practice, the proportion shifts, and much more time is spent on the making and the problem-solving, and as the projects get larger and more complex, it shifts further. The making can run to several years, The conceptual thinking, the strategy, is a fraction of that. I'm oversimplifying this to make a point, but hopefully you get the idea. Working with a camera has shifted the balance back for me. Exploring ideas through photographic projects in months, days, even hours rather than years has been very refreshing for me. It's tied up with that sense of wonder that comes with exploring a new medium, 
making mistakes, welcoming mistakes and accidents and relishing the creative opportunities they open up. It has provided me with an outlet for testing ideas at a pace and with a freedom that isn't so feasible in architectural practice. A bit more recently, I've got to a stage where there is some cross-fertilisation, the photography and the architecture informing and enriching each other. They start to complement each other in interesting ways. Photography to me also means movement. Almost everything I do starts with a walk. I rarely pick up the camera unless I'm actually wandering somewhere. There's a common thread that runs through my work, in my mind anyway. It is an interest in how we perceive the landscape as we're moving through it. We don't experience the world in fixed frames. It's hard for us to stand still and almost impossible for the eye to stay focused on a single point. As we walk and observe, we might be thinking about a detail that caught our eye a mile back. We're overlaying it with our current field of view. Something might spur a memory of an earlier work, overlaying again. We're looking out at a vista, but we're thinking about a detail. The feel of the bark on a tree in the distance, the roughness of a rock, or the temperature of a pool. It's this palimpsest of all these experiences playing out in real time as we move through the landscape that interests me. Exploring how this might be communicated using a still camera. A single point perspective device that's designed in an instant to take a three-dimensional space and render it on a two-dimensional plane. Still camera. It's counterintuitive and probably the wrong tool for my task, but I think it might be these limitations that's encouraged me to keep looking, keep experimenting, and why it remains so engaging for me. Place is something that is mentioned a lot in landscape photography. Spirit of place, or even capturing the spirit of a place. But what on earth does that mean? I'm standing still for a moment behind the lens. Is place something that can be confined to the frame or to my own field of view? Is it to the side of me or behind me? Is it all around me? Is the essence of this particular place something beyond my vision, beyond the horizon? Is it all of those things? And where does scale fit into this? Is it wide or a detail? Take a river, for example. Is it the course or the bend of a river? Or something particular about the way the water meets the bank or splits to navigate a rock? Is it the way the light plays on the surface, revealing or concealing what lies beneath? And what about the other senses, the sounds, the smells, the way the ground feels underfoot? It's elusive. And there, I guess, is the hook, the draw. Why one might return to the same place over and over again, trying to tease out its secrets, some essence. There's a quote I have by John Banville. It's the opening page from Kepler about a 17th century astronomer. Johannes Kepler, asleep in his rough dreamed the solutions of the cosmic mystery. He holds it cupped in his mind, as in his hands he would a precious something of an earthly frailty and splendour. Oh, do not wake. But he will. Mistress Barbara, with a grain of grim satisfaction, shook him by his ill-shod foot, and at once the fabulous egg burst, leaving only a bit of glare and a few coordinates of broken shell. I often feel this way with photography, like I'm trapped inside a Beckett novel, or on the slopes like Sisyphus, doomed to fail. But I think when you've accepted that, accepted that you will always fail, that place is always just out of reach, and that the best you can hope for is to unearth a few fragments, catch a glimpse from time to time, then it's really not such a bad place to be. The scope for wonder there is pretty boundless. It's a delight, Grant.
It sure is, Guy. Thanks very much. We've gone a little over time this week, but I think you'll agree it's been worth it. Don't forget, this isn't your usual photo podcast, and take care. Thank you.